Paula Boggs, welcome. It's great to be here, Sabrina Marie. Thank you so much. I uh, know you're now on a tour. You've got a great new uh, collection of music. I want you to tell our audience about you, where you're from, and uh, just a little bit about you. Absolutely. I have been a lot of places over the past almost 55 years. Uh was born in Washington, D.C., where uh, both my parents attended Howard University. And after several years of my childhood in Virginia, uh, my mom uh, took herself and her four kids out of the then segregated South to Europe, uh, first Germany and then Italy and then back to Germany. Uh, and and so that's how I grew up. I went to uh, Johns Hopkins University on a four-year Army ROTC scholarship, uh, earned my uh, airborne parachute wings while a cadet at Johns Hopkins, uh, went to law school, and for the past uh, 30 years, I've been a lawyer uh, either with the government, uh, my first 10 years as a lawyer was serving as a military lawyer, federal prosecutor, uh, and then for the uh, last 15 years or so of my legal career, uh, I was in-house first as uh, the number two lawyer at Dell, a computer corporation, and uh, the last 10 years of my legal career as the top lawyer, general counsel at a little coffee company in Seattle, a Starbucks coffee company. Oh, uh, wow, so just a little one, huh? <laughs> just a little one, okay? I don't think we know that one. <laughs> little, little neighborhood coffee shop. Uh, and, and since uh, retiring from, from Starbucks uh, in 2012, um, I first... Uh, volunteered uh, full-time as um, a surrogate uh, in the uh, Obama campaign. And what that meant mm-hmm. basically was uh, the president couldn't be everywhere the campaign would want him to be at any given moment. And so there were people like me who would speak to groups on the president's uh, behalf and for me personally, I was focused on the battleground states of Colorado and Virginia, speaking to mostly women's groups, business groups, African-American groups. I also spoke at several college campuses uh, during the campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, since the uh, campaign, I have uh, split my time uh, pretty much uh, evenly with uh, a couple of corporate boards I serve on. I'm doing uh, nonprofit work that inspires me. Uh-huh. And I'm a rock band. Uh, and so uh, I. That's an I awful lot. I mean, an <laughs> awful lot. But see, I wonder how you, you stay awake. It's like, is she a machine? What's going on with this? It's got so well, much yeah. behind her. So much. And so many questions to ask. Based upon what we've only heard so far, and I know there's much, much more, 
I, I loved Howard University. I loved it. I loved being in Washington, D.C., and um, I loved uh, being in Northern Virginia. That's where I grew up. But your your background in terms of responsibility and environment, I was looking at uh, you growing up overseas, and I know that there were leadership things that you learned through your youth because when you're traveling and you're from another culture, immersed in another culture because I had to learn this, you have to learn to make friends and, uh, you know, learn some lessons that, and I'm sure those lessons carried you through each and every success that you had. What were some of the things that you learned as a young person, say, you know, uh, through your being in Europe and those school years? What was it like for you and what did you take away from that? You know, Sabrina Marie, there are a number of things I I learned and benefited from in growing up as you did uh, as um, you know an American outside of the U.S. Uh, for for a while. But there there are two or three that I'll I'll pay particular attention to right now. The first is. I learned very quickly how not to be the new kid. Uh, between eighth grade and twelfth grade, I attended three different high schools in five years, uh, starting in Germany, then moving to Italy, and then moving back uh, to Germany. Uh, and what that taught me was to learn how to read and assimilate a culture very quickly. And so you learn how to pick up on cultural norms and cues uh, and, you know, all those other things that help anybody fit in. Uh, and I, I find that skill has served me incredibly well in my career because I've, I've been in a lot of jobs over the past 30 years and in each one I was able to um, start uh, with a perspective of I know how to figure out what flies and what doesn't in this culture and the ability to do that is really invaluable. Uh, a second thing I, I learned, I, I gained uh, from the time I spent overseas was a perspective of uh, the United States that a lot of Americans never get, which is to live in a culture where, as an American, you're able to look at the United States from outside the United States. Uh, and, you know, one of the um, results of that, and, and this is just one example of, of many, I think, is when most Americans hear the word terrorist, mm. they immediately think of the Middle East. That's that's a an American perspective born out of the experiences, whether it is 9/11 or even experiences um, 
prior to 9-11. But for me, when, when I hear the word terrorist, I actually think of Europe uh, because as a kid, I lived in Germany when the German terrorist group, Bader Meinhof gang, was terrorizing uh, German citizens and American citizens wow. in Germany in the 1970s. Or, you know, I think of Italy when, as a teen, uh, the Red Brigade, which was um, an Italian terrorist organization, was wreaking havoc on Italy, uh, including the kidnapping of the Prime Minister uh, when I was a teenager living in wow. Italy. You know, and so I think that's, that's a huge difference in perspective that I have um, that separates me uh, from many Americans and, and gives me just a, a, just a slightly different, um, you know, window into mm-hmm. what terms mean and how they affect you. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, that is an example of how, as I've moved through my career, I've been able to look at many issues from a variety of different perspectives, and I think that has helped me be uh, successful in, in law and business and in life. Mm-hmm. To be perfectly honest with you. Right. Right. You, I was looking at some of the activities in terms of leadership and really putting yourself out there because you didn't want to be the new chick. I didn't want, well, I didn't want that either. I hated that. I went to eight schools before I graduated high school. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I didn't, I didn't want to be the new, and so you're right. You do have to know and, and, and really read a situation really fast or you could get hurt. <laughs> so, That's right. uh, But I I had fun. I had fun. And, you know, it's interesting. At the time when I was was going through the the eight different schools, I kind of envied the people who were in one place who knew everybody until I got to college and really realized they were having a difficult time learning something new and being in a different place. (laughs) I was always someplace else, you know? No, I can I can relate to that very very deeply. Mm-hmm. In terms of responsibility, because it does take a lot of responsibility, not only in moving around, learning new cultures and whatnot. You were in the military, and was that one of the things you wanted first up, or, or the law degree, or, or was it just one of those transitions that you made? What was it? You know, Sabrina Marie, I I really. Uh, consider my time in Europe as a kid a tremendous gift. And one of those gifts was, you know, but for my mom's decision to work for the Department of Defense school system, my siblings and I would never have been exposed to the military uh, and and because of her action, we were uh, part of a military community. 
uh, even though we ourselves were not military, um, most of my friends were the children of military personnel. And because of the environment we found ourselves in, it was very easy uh, for me to envision uh, being in the military because most of the people around me were in the military or deeply associated with the military somehow. Uh, and so it really wasn't a big leap uh, for me to apply for ROTC scholarships mm-hmm. when I was in high school. Uh, and, you know, one reason for that was patriotism. Another reason was I, I'm the oldest of four children. And I knew uh, my, my mom uh, was going to be the primary uh, supporter of, of, you know, our college education, paying for it. Uh, and I have a brother who's a year younger, younger than me. And so I, I knew that by getting a scholarship for college, that would help my mom. And so mm-hmm. it was really... For both those reasons, I I applied for um, Army ROTC, and also um, I applied to the Naval Academy. Uh, and the interesting thing, uh, at least to some of your listeners perhaps, is I applied for um, the Naval Academy in 1976 which was the first year the academy the academies opened their doors to women. Wow. I I did receive an appointment uh to Annapolis but decided to go to Johns Hopkins with my Army ROTC scholarship instead. Uh but um you know for me it was whichever way I went, whether I went to Annapolis, to the Naval Academy, or to Johns Hopkins, I was going to go to a place that did not have a lot of experience with women uh, because <laughs> um, because Annapolis had never had women before. Hopkins uh, had had um, women uh, before, but not very long. It opened its doors to women in 19... 19- 71, and I began there in 1977. Wow. Wow. Now, in you being a first there and working your way in that military setting, um, I know now you you said you're out of your comfort zone, but you're so used to being out of your comfort zone. There are things that you kept learning there that took you into the corporate world. What were some of those lessons? One one of the um, biggest gifts I received as a student at Johns Hopkins and an ROTC cadet was uh, a a very hard conversation. My Professor of Military Science had with me when I was when I was a student at Johns Hopkins. In truth, 
in all honesty, I was not a serious cadet. I was a serious student, but I was not a serious cadet. And okay. so my professor of military science, um, his name was Captain Satterwhite. One day he sat me down and he said, you are about to go into this man's army. That's exactly how he put it. Wow. He said, and you're not, and you're not ready. <laughs> and Whoa. that was true. I was not mm-hmm. ready. Uh, and so his prescription for that was, uh, to ship me off to airborne school. So parachuting okay. school. Oh wow. And I, and I said, sir, sir, wait a minute. I think you have me confused with someone who's not afraid of heights <laughs> because oh I'm not. <laughs> oh and God. he says, you know, and he says, no, no, no. He says, you need an edge and you can do this. That's exactly what he said to me. He said, all you have to remember is no matter how many times they scream at you or how bad they make you feel, the whole purpose of it is when they say jump, you will jump from the plane and you'll land safely. So that was his advice to me. And um, I believed him. And so with that, I went off to airborne school at Fort Benning, Georgia. It had just opened its doors to women uh, in 1980, a few months before I showed up. Uh, And it was sheer hell for the 18 women who started in airborne school out of a class of 450 uh, nine of us finished and received our airborne wings. But I must tell you, those three weeks spent uh, at Fort Benning, Georgia, were three of the most important weeks of my adult life because wow. because airborne school really became a metaphor for anything hard in front of me that came after that. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I could be in a work setting and something very stressful, challenging would be in front of me. And, And in my own mind, I would say, but Paula, you've jumped out of planes. You earned your wings. You can do this. Uh, and I find a way to do it. Uh, and so I, I really, uh, I, I really have to thank Captain Satterwhite. I don't know where he is. He isn't on social media as far as I can tell. <laughs> I haven't been able to find him. Uh, but I owe him a lot. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. Networking. Networking I wanted to talk to you about because getting from there and working in the business world and then getting to the corporate business world, you have to have that skill. And we've already talked about getting out of the comfort zone, but it's also thinking outside the box, too. You've been good at that. You've got to be able to really not only maneuver, think outside the box, and network because you can't do it by yourself. What do you say about that? Well, you know, let's talk about 
being in the box and uh, being able to think outside the box. For me personally, and I suspect for a number of your listeners, people try to put you in boxes all the time. Mm-hmm. And so it really is uh, important for for one to create one's own boxes, if you will, um, or find ways to avoid or mitigate the tendency for others to put you in boxes you don't want to be in. Mm-hmm. And you know, and to and to do that you have to be aware that people are trying to put you in a box. Uh now I'll give you a perfect example of that. Uh and this isn't in the workplace. This is um something that you know I encountered in high school and I suspect many people have some form of this happen to them while in high school even. So my story was I had a guidance counselor when I was attending high school in Germany who, despite my high SAT scores and GPA, was urging me and my parents to send me to a community college. Wow. There's nothing wrong with community colleges. And, in fact, the community colleges of today are amazing Mm -hmm. in many respects. But uh, I knew, and my parents knew, I was Ivy League material. And so, in order to... Uh, realized that I had to ignore the advice of my guidance counselor, as did my parents, mm. to, to to create our own reality. Right. And, you know, guess what? That's where I ended up. But I could have easily ended up someplace else. Mm-hmm. And, and I think... You know, many of us uh, find ourselves being, you know, shepherded, you know, into boxes that if we are not adroit and mindful, we'll get boxed up in. Mm-hmm. You're 100% right. Another thing that uh, goes right along with those boxes, environment. The people that yeah. you have around you, the people who are your mentors, the people who, um, you know, because say you you got boxed, you would be mm-hmm. boxed with what? It wouldn't be Ivy League material. It may That's not right. have, even and even if you didn't aspire to Ivy League material, it it most likely wouldn't have been where you wanted to go anyway. So that is exactly right. Mm-hmm. You know, so environment. What do you what do you say to that environment, and and how important that is, and mentorship. Environment and and mentorship. I can I can only speak for myself and what I have personally 
seen and been able to do for others. Mentorship and networking can be the difference uh, between uh, success and failure. Because there are very few people who get anywhere on their own. Wow. And I can I can count so many times when someone has seen something in me I didn't see in myself at the time. And in some cases, it took years for me to see that in myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, take Captain Satterwhite. He saw right. things in me I certainly didn't see in myself at the time of that conversation. Uh, but that was an act of mentoring. Uh, that was a gift he gave me uh, that has continued to give uh, throughout my career. Beautiful. That's wonderful. I was looking at your being on many boards and um, now the President's Committee on the Arts and the Humanities School of Rock. That's working and listening and building with people, another form of networking. Yes. Congratulations on that appointment, as a matter of fact. That's, that hadn't been Thank that you. long. <laughs> yeah, congratulations on that. And you're working with these groups, boards and whatnot, networking. What are some of the things you learned in corporate America that makes you material to be able to serve and do that type of work? Because people are going to wonder that, like, wow, she's on many boards but you have to be able to work with people, and you have to be able to listen on both sides, the good and the bad. Yes. And, you know, I think it is really important to show up 110%, mm-hmm. no matter what the task is. You know, when you're serving on a board... You know, and I've, and I've seen this um, over many, many years uh, in serving on many boards. Uh, there are board members who not only show up, they roll up their sleeves and they invest in whatever the mission is and they propel the mission forward. There are other board members, typically, uh, who are simply going through the motions. Mm. And you want to be in that first category and not in the latter. Because if you're in the first category and you develop a reputation for making things happen, that reputation will stay with you and you will reap the benefit of that reputation in uh, usual and unusual ways. Here's a perfect example. So I just um, I just rolled off the American Red Cross board. I had served on that board 
uh, for five years, and it was a tremendous uh, experience for me. Upon uh, rolling off that board, I reached out to a fellow uh, American Red Cross board member who I know is um, is serving on a number of corporate boards. And so I reached out to her and I, I said something along the lines of, it's been such uh, a pleasure uh, to work with you over the past five years. Um, I know you serve on a number of corporate boards. I aspire to serve on one more corporate board. If you, if you know of opportunities you think I would be uh, well suited for, please keep me in mind. And that's mm-hmm. what I wrote her. Within a few hours, she wrote back to me and she said, Paula, I have an amazing board opportunity. I think you would be well suited for. It's a board I'm on, and I would love to serve with you again. Wow. Now, if I had been one of those board members at the American Red Cross who simply showed up or, worse yet, failed to show up, was on the board but failed to show up, or simply was going through the motions, I suspect, A, I would not have been able to write this board member in the first place, and B, certainly she would have not had a response along the lines of wanting to help me. Wow. Wow. And that, it's really, you're right, it is showing up, because when I look at, um, you know, your record here, I mean, even the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences, wow. Yeah. Really being, being the Grammys. <laughs> yeah, the Grammys. Oh, yes, indeed, most definitely. <laughs> I um, also see School of Rock, and we're going to get into a little bit of music here. I, I've been listening to Reverb Nation and, and, you know, rock and roll and Lenny's in the house and, you know, really love what I'm hearing because yeah. not only do we have a jazzy country or folk sound, but a very soothing sound mm. uh, at, the, at the same time, very positive sound. I see that uh, you were influenced by not only Miles Davis and Joni Mitchell, yes. or Nero, amazing yes. songwriter, Leonard Cohen and Pink Floyd, and I love Led Zeppelin. I love yes. Led Zeppelin. Trampled underfoot. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I uh, I love listening to what they call classic rock, and um, you've kind of blended those those uh, genres all together with with your sound. I wanted to talk about your band, and you were able to go from corporate America now to reinventing yourself. What do you say about reinvention? That's really thinking outside the box there. <laughs> you know, I love reinvention. <laughs> yeah, I do too. You know, and you know, for for me, you know, I I I speak about that transition uh, from time to time, and you know, one of the things I I say to not only my fellow boomers, but also to 
young people who are just starting in the world of work, you know, one of the things that has uh, really fueled me uh, over the course of really my life is the uh, pursuit of what I call the work of my soul. Yes. And, you know, and it, and for me, it has, you know, required that I ask the hard question, you know, what what do you need in a job or activity to to be fulfilled? Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I know about myself is I'm a very mission-driven person. And, you know, that doesn't, and it doesn't really matter what the mission is so long as it is consistent with my value system. And so, you know, for me, you know, people say, well, you've had a lot of, you know, diverse things uh, in your career. That's true. But if you think about it, most of the things I've done, uh, including what I'm doing now with my rock band, are mission-oriented endeavors. And, and it, you know, and that doesn't really matter whether one's talking about the Army or Starbucks, mm-hmm. because Starbucks is, is a very mission-driven Corporation. It is. Mm-hmm. It is very focused on the quality of its coffee. It's very focused on you know, surprising and delighting its customers, um, and it's very focused on showing up in the communities in which it does business in a positive way. Uh, and most people who come to work for Starbucks come to Starbucks and, and indeed stay because they believe in those things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, so when you, when you know that about me, what I've done in my career, you know, before, you know, leaping into this music thing uh, is, um, is understandable or at least more understandable. For me... Music began, the story of Paula Boggs and music really began when I was a child uh, attending Catholic school in the segregated south of Petersburg, Virginia. Uh, and, you know, and one of the things that makes, uh, you know, sort of the Paula Boggs music story so, um, I think, different, if you will, is So I was this black kid in an almost all-white Catholic school uh, in Petersburg at a time when the Catholic Church itself was uh, moving from uh, being, you know, all Latin to Vatican II, where for the first time, you know, Catholic churches in the United States were... You know, not only having their mass in English, but they were embracing folk music. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was this, this young black kid 
who, you know, in my home, I was hearing the music of Sam and Dave and the Delphonics and this and that. But at school, I was hearing the music of Peter, Paul, and Mary, Simon and Garfunkel, and, and groups like that. And so, uh, and, and then in my mom's church, uh, my, my mom was uh, uh, AME, my dad was Catholic, and so in my mom's church, I was hearing gospel music. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so at a very early age, I had these exposures, um, diverse exposures, you know, sort of, you know, classic rhythm and blues, gospel, folk music. Uh, and then, you know, as as I got older and we moved, uh, you know, from Virginia to Europe, I was exposed to, to even a more diverse array of music uh, while living in Germany and Italy. And so I think all of those influences show up in my music. I started playing guitar at age 10 and started writing music almost shortly thereafter. And so through through my middle school, high school, college, and even law school years, uh, I continued to write music. Um, you know, by, by college and law school, I certainly wasn't performing very much, you know, an occasional coffee house, um, you know, performance here or there. Uh, but by the end of my 20s, I had totally given it up. Hmm. Uh, you know, as my, as my career climbed, uh, you know, it was one of those things that, you know, got put on the back burner and then <laughs> really got put in a box. Uh, and I thought it was gone. I thought it was one of those things that, you know, I had done as a young person, but, you know, I was doing different things now. What changed that was uh, about uh, nine years ago, my sister-in-law died in a car accident, age 36, um, and my, my youngest brother's wife, uh, leaving a two-year-old daughter, and I was totally uh, distraught uh, by that. And as part of the grieving, uh, I took my guitar out again. And uh, before before I knew it, I was writing songs again. I had. Uh, the, the amazing, really, opportunity to take a one-year songwriter's course through the University of Washington. And through that, really for the first time in my life, I was part of a community of songwriters. Uh, at the end of that year, I had another mentoring moment uh, in that one of my songwriting teachers pulled me aside at the end of our year. She said to me, Paula, I think you really have something here. Uh, Mm -hmm. 
and what a shame it would be if you don't keep going.